Happy Monday. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi to start off a week of news. Let's go to it. The first incel to be convicted of a federal hate crime wanted to kill 3,000 women at Ohio State University. What do prosecutors say would be an appropriate punishment, Lisa? Yeah, this is Trace Jenko of Hillsboro, Ohio. He is the first incel or involuntary celibate to be convicted and to be sentenced in a federal as a federal hate crime. Um, AUSA or Assistant U.S. Attorney Megan Gaffney Painter is asking federal judge Susan Diot for 12 and a half years in prison. His defense attorney, Richard Monahan, says two years time served is what he wants. And he said that Jenko never put women in fear of harm. The sentencing will happen this Thursday. So Jenko, this is kind of a convoluted story, but Jenko was arrested in March 2020 in Highland County after a 911 call from his mom who found his notes and she was worried about him. He pled guilty to making a terrorist threat. He served 17 months in state prison. But about five months after his release, the FBI found nearly 3,500 text messages from Jenko with the word incel in it. He posted 450 times on incel forums. He idolized incels who did mass shootings. And then he bought like a bunch of guns. He bought a bulletproof vest and a hoodie with the word revenge on it. And then in 2019, he wrote a manifesto, a hideous symphony, while he was vacationing in Greece. He said that he had planned to target 3,000 women, and then that day he started looking up sororities at Ohio State University. Um, He actually went to the Army so he could get training in mass shootings, but the Army booted him out. So, um, and just to explain, an involuntary celibate, it's kind of like misogyny on steroids. These are men who are frustrated because women won't engage with them romantically and sexually. And so they have a deep hate towards these women, but then they also want to be with these women. It's kind of weird. But Case Western Reserve University professor, law professor Michael Benza says, this sentencing for Genco will be a benchmark for future uh, sentencing recommendations. He says prosecutors are taking note of incels and the incel movement. They feel like it's growing and they want to get ahead of it before these people act on their desires. This is a troubling case. Obviously, what he wrote is hateful and horrible, and he was out in the weeds in a big way. But he didn't take any action to mm-hmm. to do it. He just wrote his stuff down. And by the time they caught up to him, it was a few years down the road. Correct. And he was saying, yeah, I don't do that anymore. I've walked away from that side of my life. We often talk about how um, teenagers, particularly males, have all sorts of crazy stuff going on in their head. And we've seen explosions of violence in Cleveland because some of those males have guns, but they're talking about putting him away for 17 years for some stuff he wrote that he, that he never acted on. And that just seems troubling to me. And I feel like it's troubling, too, because these emails were dug up after he had served his prison sentence, you know, so it was a couple years later. And, you know, his attorney, Monaghan, says that, well, this is a little weird, but Monaghan says that Genco's online comments were a therapeutic outlet rather than specific threats, and he didn't act on them. He absolutely did not, and he also says that Genco had an undiagnosed bipolar issue. He had alcoholism when he plotted the shooting a few years ago, but he says that he matured after prison and he's no longer an incel. 
Yeah, I, I, you're allowed to have dark thoughts. You're allowed to write down dark thoughts. This is a country where we have the freedom of speech. And it didn't appear from what I've read that he actually made any threats mm-hmm. or did anything mm-hmm. to act on it. He was just writing these horrible, dark fantasies. And he could go to prison for you know most of his young adult life as a result. It seems like a really bad overreach by the government. Yeah, but then again, they're looking at a guy who's stockpiling guns and hasn't got a bulletproof vest. So, you know, it seemed like he might have been close to action. But then again, he went to prison after he wrote this. So he may have changed. Who knows? Yeah, it's a a very interesting story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A candidate to replace Bill Johnson in Congress had an ugly standoff with people he considered trespassers in 2022. It involves shots being fired. Laura, what happened? Well, talk about an interesting story with, you know, complexities. This was the end of November of 2022. Congressional candidate and Republican state Senator Michael Rooley, so he's running now, uh, spotted two teenagers he thought were on his Columbiana County property. It was before dawn. They had flashlights. He grabbed his pistol and fired. And this was a teenager and his girlfriend. They came back that night with their family to retrieve these tree stands and other gear because they determined it was no longer safe for them to hunt. But they were on their uncle's property. They had permission to be there that that was just next to abutted Ruley's property. At that point, the wife of Michael Ruley, Kelly Ruley, started shooting. And that's the only thing they can really agree on because they don't agree whose property they were on. And they don't know if they fired shots in the ground or they were actually trying to hit them. So there was a special investigation done. It was basically found that there were no charges for anyone. No one was hurt. And what Ruley says is my God-given right to defend my property and my family, and I will continue advocating for it. But this is disturbing. Can we all agree that shooting a gun into the ground or anywhere else to warn away trespassers is too much? Just mm-hmm. what, what about yelling, hey, you're on my property, I want you to leave. Or I'm dialing 911 because you're on my property and you shouldn't be here. The firing of a gun just and this guy wants to serve us in Congress. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of temperate person that, that we want serving in Congress? And he's not at all apologetic, right? He's saying they were trespassing and I have a right to protect my property and my family. But nowhere does anyone think that these teenagers who were trying to hunt, you know, bow hunt, uh, I guess they he had a um, gun in his car, but he didn't have a gun with him on his person at, at this at any time that they were actually in danger like you know they weren't trying to rob them or hurt them in any way he was on you know the tree stands were clearly on the uncle's property so they disagree about how close they were but i mean this to me is scary that you could be walking and accidentally be somewhere that you're not supposed to be just think you were on someone else's property and you're going to get shot at because you well, no, stop, stop. They, they didn't say they were, sh- they claimed they were shot at, but there was no finding they were shot at. Correct. So we got to be careful not to defame them. There, there okay. was a determination no crime occurred, but that's not really what this is about. It's about what's appropriate. It seems like this is hysterical behavior. Oh my gosh, there's people on our property. I'm going out to shoot into the ground to scare them away. Who does that? Well, the press special prosecutor said the actions were, quote, reasonable and that they had issued verbal warnings and had a, quote, subjective fear in the moment. I, I don't I don't agree with that. 
Because there's no evidence whatsoever that these folks were threatening to Ruli. Or just, even trespassing. There's no proof of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I this is really a kind of a shocking story. And it's not that long ago. It's not like this is ancient history. This guy is running for Congress. And, he and he's already a way. state he's already a state senator. Like he's in charge of our state government. I'm sure somebody is thinking, oh, you urban folks, you don't understand what it's like in the rural world. When somebody's on your property, you are automatically you're afraid. It just seems like in a civilized society, and Congress is supposed to represent the civilized society, this is not appropriate behavior. Good story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. We broke the story a few weeks back that the Cleveland schools had abandoned the original plan to spend Mackenzie Scott's $20 million donation on a special program for students. Cleveland City Council members have some thoughts about that. Layla, what are they? Well, 12 members of City Council signed a letter last week demanding that school CEO uh, Warren Morgan restore that money to its original intended use, which was for what was called the Get More Opportunities program. In this program, students and faculty could apply for grants, and then a student-led committee would vet those proposals and award the money. And the funding would go toward student enrichment for the most part, college visits and other travel programs and music therapy and, and neighborhood improvements near schools, stuff like that. The panel was supposed to award $4 million in grants each year for five years. Well, they got only one year into that program when Warren Morgan came in as CEO, and the reality was that he found himself staring down a $168 million budget deficit on account of ARPA money coming to an end. So he just kind of quietly asked the school board to claw back that $20 million from the Mackenzie Scott Fund so he could use it to plug the budget gap. And the students who were involved in this program were stunned. They were hurt. They felt completely betrayed. And so in this letter last week, city council members spoke up for them. They wrote that the council considers it vital to maintain credibility and support the aspirations of future leaders with integrity and honesty. It is unacceptable to retract a promised resource for students and the community. Five council members didn't sign this letter. Council President Blaine Griffin was one of them. Carrie McCormick, Charles Slife, Jenny Spencer, and Danny Kelly were the others. Courtney Stolfi reached out to those council members to ask why they didn't sign the letter. And for the most part, they said that they're still gathering information and trying to decide how they feel about this situation. Morgan is going to be before council today at a caucus where they're going to uh, most certainly grill him about the Mackenzie Scott money and the rest of his strategy for closing that budget gap. It's sad that he had to do what he thinks he had to do, and he handled it very clumsily, as Courtney reported. I mean, the way he treated the students and the people in the program, the way he threw other people under the bus, it really wasn't what a leader should do. You should be transparent, honest, and careful of people's feelings, which he wasn't. But you can't deny that he is facing a huge budget shortfall and this is a lot of money that can help plug that hole. I don't know how council can make the argument that you should keep that program when the basic education is, is at stake. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't present for it, but you and Lisa were in an editorial board meeting with Morgan. Mm -hmm. How did you come away from that with regard to the budget hole? As as far as the Mackenzie Scott money goes, I mean, the thing that I found most offensive about that was how 
Morgan had painted himself as this this leader who listens. He, you know, went on a he spent his whole first year basically in a listening tour uh, where he talked to parents and faculty and students and what tried to go into every CMSD institution to gather feedback. And he said at his state of the schools that he was going to put together a, um, a, a focus group that was going to help him help guide these budgetary decisions. And by the time he was saying all this, he had already asked the school board to, to, to claw back that money. And then the kids who had spent their entire summer training to learn how to vet these proposals and to do right by this program suddenly had the rug pulled out from uh, under them without even a conversation. I, that was the most offensive I, part of it. I get all that. I get all that. I, I, and, and I said the same thing. I think that he handled it badly. But in the end, you got a budget shortfall. Look, if you end up losing one of the incomes in your house, you're going to cancel your your. Mm-hmm cable TV and you're going to think about going to one car. I mean, wh- when when your budget gets tight, you've got to find the places to tighten it. Lisa, what did you think? I felt like we were too hard on the guy, quite frankly. Like, you know, he was staring down a multi-million dollar shortfall. And I think that he came in and said, okay, well, this this pot of money from Mackenzie Scott is only helping maybe a small part of the of the student body. And so he figures putting it in the general revenue fund would be able to spread it further and help more people. I mean, he's a very personable guy. Um, I don't feel like he threw uh, former uh, CMSD, I can't think of the word Eric anyway, Gordon. Eric Gordon, yeah, under the bus. I think that, and you said this yourself, Chris, that how could Morgan come in and find that they were teetering on a financial cliff? How did we not know this was coming? And Layla, if you put aside the the distaste for how he did this, because it crushed those kids, it really was not the way to handle it. Where do you where do you think he stands on clawing back this money to take care of the basic educational stuff that's needed in the budget? Well, maybe it is necessary. But on the other hand, when he gave us his budget propo- his his uh, proposal for how he's going to fill the gap, he also mentioned that there would eventually be phase two, perhaps, of cuts at the central office, which suggested that there might be more that could be cut there. And some of those cuts involved things like, you know, travel for central office faculty and uh, their food budget and things like that. Those are coming out of their initial cuts to the central office. So. I, I would love to know what, you know, where else you can trim the fat. Maybe there is some portion of this program that could be salvaged. There are a, but- couple, there are a couple of things we should point out. One is that when the pandemic hit and they closed the schools, the educational needs were huge. They got a huge infusion of cash to deal with that. And they were spending it for the last four years at a high rate. That money's dried up. They got to cut those services. That's one of the budget challenges they have. The other is they've been in a four-year tax cycle, and the last tax was in 2020. This is 2024. There, while there isn't anything yet on the ballot, it's pretty clear they're going to have to ask Cleveland residents to provide their taxes, which is interesting this year because of the downtown TIF. You have this battle going on right now, versus neighborhoods versus downtown. All this tax-abated residential land the last 10, 15 years, they're not paying taxes. And so if they do raise the tax, it falls disproportionately on the people who can least afford it. There's going to be an interesting debate come November. You're listening to Today in Ohio. College athletes are getting some protection from rabid gamblers in Ohio. Lisa, what is changing? 
Yeah, the Ohio Casino Control Commission granted a request by Governor Mike DeWine and the National Collegiate Athletics Association to ban player-specific prop bets in all college sports. Uh, Bettors now can no longer wager on specific outcomes of specific players, like the number of three-pointers they shoot, how many yards the quarterback you know gets, and they have to report comply by March 1st. The NCAA says players have been exposed to violent vitriol from losing gamblers and it opens the door to cheating. Uh, The Casino Control Commission Executive Director Matthew Schuler says harassment of student athletes is increasing and this poses a clear and present danger if prop bets continue. Player-specific prop bets equal about 2% of available wagers in college sports and less than a percent of all bets placed, about $105 million. An NCAA 2023 survey of 500 Division I school compliance admins says that 10% have reported awareness of athletes being harassed in person and online by gamblers. Sports books have objected to this change they say that they can investigate any you know claims of harassment or violence and they say a ban would drive people to the black market for prop bets <laughs> sports books are right getting the money but they don't want to lose a penny of it right this this seems like a, a very smart move the, the the college athletes should never ever be in the crosshairs of angry gamblers. Hell, they're already in the crosshairs with just angry fans. My wife screams at the television when she's <laughs> watching her beloved Michigan State. I can only imagine what would happen if there was money involved. Smart move. Do we know, and you may not know the answer to this, have other states taken the same step? I do not know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if Ohio is breaking ground here to protect the college athlete, which it should. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Pete Krause wrote a different kind of story on the coming eclipse, examining some of the scientific phenomena involved. Laura, what are the highlights? So everybody probably knows by this point that on April 8th, we're going to have a full solar eclipse in Cleveland. And this is a more than 100 mile wide wide swath across the United States. This hasn't happened here since the 1800s, and it's not going to happen here again until 2444. Uh, So Cleveland is this prime viewing spot. And unlike in 2017, we're at a height of the solar cycle. It's an 11-year cycle. So it's possible that we could get an even bigger display than they had in places like Tennessee that got the full total eclipse last time. So that should be pretty exciting if it is sunny and no clouds in Northeast Ohio, which is a big question mark. Actually, it's very low probability. I was reading a story over the weekend about how frequently that day is cloudy up here, and it's cloudy a lot. I think back in uh, Lisa's beloved Texas, you would see the this in its full glory. We may not. That would be such a shame if all it does is get dark for a little while. <laughs> well, it only has to be sunny for four minutes, three minutes and 50 seconds, starting just before 3.14 p.m. That's when we're going to see this. The temperature could drop 10 degrees, and uh, there could be some abnormal effect from animals, but it's so short-lived, we don't really know. It's not like the cicadas are going to start humming. Uh, NASA folks will be training spectrometers on this corona around the sun. They're going to record images of hydrogen, helium, and trace amounts of silicon, iron, and magnesium. That's being expelled into the solar system. So they're going to look at research. So it's not just a cool thing to to look at for a regular person, but scientists are going to be working on this and hopefully come up with new information too. 
And let's remember, the pagans in Lorain County will see their water disappear, the food will be <laughs> off the grocery store shelves, and emergency crews will be busy the whole time. Is it really 400 years till the next one? Well, in Cleveland, like, I mean, obviously, there are eclipses, two to five eclipses, partial annual or total, somewhere in the world every year. A total solar eclipse actually occurs every 18 months. It's just like, where is that going to occur? Are you going to be there to see it? And Cleveland apparently is not getting its own full total eclipse until 2044. Twenty sorry, twenty four forty four, four hundred years. All right, I'll see you there. <laughs> You're listening to today in Ohio. Cleveland has its second woman police chief and a new safety director. Layla, what happened to Carrie Howard? This was an abrupt turn of events last week. Carrie Howard announced his resignation late last week, and and he didn't say why, but his resignation came shortly after comments he made during a Fox 8 interview in which he admitted to driving his child in a city car despite a policy that prohibits non-Cleveland employees from riding in city vehicles. After Howard's comments, Fox 8 reported that the city had begun an internal investigation of him, but said he would remain on the job while that probe was underway. But then Howard resigned. So the city's police chief, Wayne Drummond, has now been appointed as the interim safety director. And Deputy Chief Dorothy Todd, who's a 20-year veteran of the police force, she has been promoted to the police chief. But the resignation really caught everyone off guard. Council President Blaine Griffin said he was really surprised when the mayor told him on Friday. He said Howard was a dedicated public servant and he really loved his job. And it kind of makes you wonder if if there might be something more to the story here. Well, I got to say, of all the years I've been in Cleveland, he was either the best or the second best public safety director. Bill Benahan was a great safety director, too. And he is one of the only ones that has held misbehaving police officers to account. So, of course, the police mm-hmm. union hated him and they tried to right. undermine him at every juncture. I think they, they every time they got a gotcha on him, they made sure all the reporters knew about it. This seems like the lamest of all the gotchas for him to resign over. I wonder if he just got fed up that that he's been under attack for so long for doing his job. He just thought, I'm under investigation I'm going to walk. Or, as you say, is there something worse that we don't know about? I mean, okay, there's a policy. You shouldn't have people in your car. But he's a 24-7 guy. Any hour of the day or night, he can be called somewhere. And he has a city car. So it's not inconceivable that he'd have somebody in the car. It seems like, really, the policy is what's stupid, not the what he did and to, to lose his job on, on or something so lame. I just don't understand it. Yeah. But if he, if he just chose to walk away because he got fed up, I, if, I mean, when you wait until you're not under a cloud, I mean, it's, I, you don't want to leave under those circumstances, especially when it seems so, you know, so lame, as you said, what? but you're right. I mean, the police union, they, they did, they really disliked him. They tried to get Bib to fire him after he made those comments about how, how Irish the police force is. They took a vote of no confidence. I mean, he he was under the under fire, but but that's a job and I'm sure he he just managed it. And he did I, I'm very surprised by this. And he did tell Channel 8 that he was I think I read this, he wasn't aware of the policy. So he said, Yeah, I have people, I've had my kids or somebody in my car because he didn't know. So he was going to be what whatever the finding is, guilty or 
or whatever of doing it because he was pretty open about having done it. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, he was Frank Jackson's choice and Justin Bibb kept him when he came in. Often a new mayor will pick his own safety director. So maybe there's no no love lost there. Hopefully we'll get more information about it. It's a shame because he's been very good. Of course, Wayne Drummond is universally respected. So it's not like mm-hmm. we're taking a step backward here. This is true. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, what did Jim Jordan have to say at the CPAC conference on Friday? Anything the least bit controversial? (laughs) He went after everybody. Yeah, the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, was held in National Harbor, Maryland, and is wrapping up. And Jim Jordan said during his talk that the left controls big media, corporations, big sports, academia, Hollywood, and bureaucracy, but it doesn't control we the people. And he also said he was talking to a whistleblower in Fulton County, Georgia, prosecutor Fonnie Willis's office with allegations that Willis misused federal funds. Um, uh, and of course, this is the uh, prosecutor that's looking into the overturning of the Georgia election results. He also said that FBI informant who had lied about the Ukraine and Burisma paying bribes to Joe and Hunter Bryden, he says, That doesn't change the facts that he lied. And then also J.D. Vance was there. Do we want to talk about what he said? Sure. Okay. Yeah. J.D. Vance said that he, it was absurd for the U.S. to devote so much attention to Ukraine when our southern border is wide open. (laughs) He, He said that immigrants destroy the voting power of citizens. And he said 2024 may be the last chance to stop it. And he said the Democrats will try to jail Trump and they said that we will be much, he said that Trump would be much poorer for serving his country and that Trump sacrificed in an unusual way, but he did it for the right reasons. I used to think J.D. Vance at least had an intellect, but the stuff coming out of his mouth these days makes you wonder if he's just dumb. The They, they are all looking bad over the impeachment investigation now. I mean, the, the earth has just fallen away from their feet with the evidence that the guy lied. The whole impeachment was based on that. And they were all screaming and talking about the Biden crime family. And it's all gone. They're they're helpless now on what to do because they look so ridiculous for having championed it like it was the equivalent of what Trump did, which it wasn't. And not to mention the fact, and we're going to be talking about this, about them backtracking on in vitro fertilization. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Well, let's talk about that. With the Alabama Supreme Court making the nonsensical ruling that an embryo is a person, many Republicans are running for the hills because they know this could affect the November elections. Abortion has been a key factor in the past year and a half. A number have stood up to say they support artificial insemination and it should be protected from this absurd ruling. But, Laura, what do the Republican candidates for the Senate in Ohio say? They support the right to IVF because maybe the National Republican Party told them to say that. So Matt Dolan, Frank LaRose, and Bernie Loreno all issued statements reaffirming their support for IVF. This was all on Friday, right after the National Republican Senatorial Committee issued a memo to candidates saying, clearly and concisely reject efforts by the government to restrict IVF. So Moreno called it a vital tool for families that struggle with infertility 
Dolan said society needs more loving and stable families, not less. IVF and fertility-related services are a blessing for those seeking to have children. And LaRose's statement said, for America to be strong, we must nurture families and support family formation, expanding access to IVF. Fertility treatments and pregnancy centers are an essential part of that. Some of this actually read to me like the handmaid's tale. Mm -hmm. Like like they're all just about having more babies. I mean, and then I, then of course I got in my soapbox and I was like, well, if you want to support families, why don't we have better childcare? Yeah. This is an interesting divide though, because the, the whole personhood movement is based on that fertilized cell. But they didn't get into that in their statement. Yeah, I know, mm-hmm. but but it's going to that this is the ridiculousness of the the whole personhood movement. So, it's going to cause a problem because the people who are fighting abortion want to take it all the way back to insemination. If you do, you get in the way of a whole lot of people that want to have families. It was a story yeah. I read this morning that a lot of younger people that are dealing with cancer this is their way to have a family. So they're, before they go in for all the damaging treatments, they do this. And this would stop that. Very interesting quandary that's been created by this Alabama court ruling. Right. And they don't want to do anything that's unpopular with their base, right? And, you know, if you look at the Catholic Church, they've been against IVF because of this, because of what happens to the unused embryos. But uh, yeah, they're, they're getting themselves in a little bit of a pickle here. Yes, they are. Just as November looms. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's do one more. Come Saturday, we'll find out whether the Brexville Bees gymnastics team extends the streak of state championships to 21. We've been writing about how the team got here. Layla, what is the story about the coaches who started and continue this incredible dynasty? Yes. Behind this incredible team is uh, the Ganim family. They run Gym World and Broadview Heights, and for decades, they have coached the bees out of that facility. The Ganims are a nearly 50-year gymnastics coaching dynasty, but not in the way you might think of it. When most of us think of coaches who train champion teams of gymnasts, we think of Bella Caroli with his you know cutthroat, win-at-all-cost approach to coaching. But reporter Hannah Drown, who's been covering this story, learned that the secret to the Bees' success is actually the opposite of that. The Ganims really believe in a holistic approach to coaching. The gymnasts who train with them are, are really treated like family. And so the backstory is that Ron and Joan Ganim, they met in the 1960s when they were both students at Kent State University. She was a gymnast on the school's team, and that kept her really busy. So if he wanted to spend time with her, he would have to tag along with her to practice. And that really annoyed her coach, of course. So the coach told Ron, you either learn gymnastics, learn to coach, or get lost. And uh, he tried the vault once, ran straight into the (laughs) end of it, probably knocked the wind out of himself, and then decided he'd probably make a better coach. So then from then on, gymnastics was always a big part of their lives. They graduated, got married, both became teachers in the Brexville Broadview Heights District, and they coached the bees for some years before Joan started having children and then was told by the district that she should be staying home with her kids and couldn't come back to work. Uh, a sign of the times, well, I guess. That was bizarre. But, you, once you know, have two kids, you know, you're not 70s. allowed to work. What the heck? <laughs> I read that I too and was like, jeez. <laughs> I know, it's harsh. But the Ganims needed money, so they borrowed a few thousand from Joan's parents and they opened Gym World. And their business was kind of steadily growing for a number of years. And then when their daughter Maria was a sophomore in high school, she wanted to join the Brexville Bees. 
And Joan Gannon was so busy with gym world that she realized if she wanted to see her daughter compete on the gymnastics team, she would have to be the coach. So the Gannums went back to coaching this team and it took a few years, but in 1994, they won their first championship. They beat out the perennial champs, Magnificat, and they won two more titles back to back in 2000 and 2001. Then the Bees spent a couple years kind of building a really strong team. And in 2004, they took the state title again, and they never stopped. The winning streak begun, and uh, this year they're pursuing their 21st consecutive uh, state title. Yeah, and, and Hannah will be there for that. We're hoping to have one more story published Saturday about part of how they have coped with this all, all this time. I'm not sure we'll get it done, but we're going to try. And then we'll have a story in Sunday's Plain Dealer Update section and on Cleveland.com on whether they continue the streak or don't. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've gone a little bit long, but we had good stories to talk about. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Tuesday. We already got a couple of good ones in the bag for tomorrow's discussion. Mm-hmm.